Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February 27th, 2017, and this is episode 1959 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, it's a listener feedback show. Here's what we're going to talk about today. I'll give you a weekend AAR, that's after action review for you civilian types, uh, about the hog hunting that I did this weekend. A little brief one anyway. Question on dealing with ants in the compost bin. A lesson about the state from Star Trek. My rules, personally, for dealing with contractors. This kind of stirred up some discussion from uh, the interview with Kerry Collins last week. Uh, an example of political correctness eroding the human mind from corporate America. The context of local secession via the unincorporation of towns and cities. Um, MERS Radio as a property monitoring system, something I don't talk about a lot anymore since MERS Radio, uh, the company MERS Radio that we uh, had as a sponsor, uh, decided to go out of business. Because honestly, trying to make a business on a single product is difficult to do. Uh, but I'll tell you a little bit about my experience using MERS Radio for property uh, property monitoring and what you got to do to be able to do it right. Uh, an update on guns in oil refineries in Texas. We had a question from a guy that said, hey, I, I want to carry a gun in my rig to protect myself, but the refineries say I can't get in with it and, and what have you. I'll talk about that a little bit more. And a little bit about extremism on both the left and right and how that could actually be the thing that destroys America if anything does. All that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, would you like to do business with other members of the TSP community? If so, check out the TSP Business Directory, the place for our listeners to promote their businesses or find great products and services from other community members. Check there first when you need something, and remember to leave a review when you do business with a member. The directory is all about trust and value for value exchange. Check out tspbiz.com, that's tspbiz.com, to learn more. Hey, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know I love to cook. And my go-to source for spices, seasoning, sauces, and information is Chef Keith Snow's site, HarvestEating.com. Give Chef Keith a try, and you'll see why I use his products at least a few times every single week in my own kitchen. You can learn more at HarvestEating.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. It's going to be a bit of an abbreviated version today. As you can hear my voice... Uh, Once again, struggling with, I've been struggling for about two and a half weeks with some kind of crud that seems to be going around to a lot of you guys. I've seen people on Facebook talking about having laryngitis and things like that. My wife could barely speak two weeks ago. Um, the kids passed it on to my wife and she's eventually passed it on to me. And, uh, so I'm gonna make a lot of the stuff in this show is a little bit abbreviated. So. 1959 is the episode because that is the uh, or the year because that is the episode we're in. We have the year that changed everything from Alex Shrugged. We have Khrushchev comes calling from Alex Shrugged. We have spying for science from Softpaw Ben. Uh, if you want to read the bullet points, you can do that yourself. Uh, but I'll tell you, Barbie was in, released by Mattel this year. The first uh, uh, plain paper copier is released by Xerox this year, and uh, a couple other things uh, this year in film: Ben Hur, Journey to the Center of the Earth, and On the Beach. Uh, born this year, Magic Johnson, da John McEnroe, and Mike McCarthy in sports. And like I said, the rest you can read yourself. Some pretty interesting people born. But I'm going to read Khrushchev Comes a Colin. 
People are fleeing the German workers' paradise, other known as the GDR or East Germany, to the West. After World War II, Germany was divided into East and West, but that left Berlin and the East under Soviet domination. Uh, I mean, under the People's Protection. So Berlin was split separately. Now West Berlin remains an oasis of freedom. Compared to the East, it's like holding a prayer visual for self-denial while the church next door is having a barbecue cookout and a sing-along. The Soviet Union tried starving them out, but the Berlin airlift put the kibosh on that plan. Now Khrushchev, leader of the Soviet Union, demands Berlin be made into a free city, meaning his tanks will ensure the freedom uh, the gov- of the government to confiscate all their stuff. President Eisenhower does what any red-blooded American champion of freedom would do. He goes golfing at Augusta National. He is flipping off the Soviet Union while working behind the scenes. West Berlin votes Niet on Khrushchev's Freedom City, uh, Freedom City BS. Uh, so Khrushchev chart changes tactics. He wants to visit the United States. Eisenhower thinks this is a great idea. Sure, Wilbur. With everyone crossing their fingers, the man who threatened to bury the West comes a calling. They meet in Camp David privately to clear the air. Eisenhower leaves Khrushchev enough room to back off, and he does for now. My take by Alex Shrug. During the visit, Khrushchev and Eisenhower discussed military procurement. It reveals Eisenhower's thinking long before warning us of the military-industrial complex. Eisenhower. My military leaders come to me and say, Mr. President, we need such and such a sum for such a pro, such and such a program. If we don't get the funds we need, we'll fall behind the Soviet Union. That's how they wring money out of me. How is it with you? Khrushchev, it's just the same. They say, if we don't get the money we need, and if there's a war, then the enemy will have superiority over us. So I mull over the request and finally come to the conclusion that the military should be supported with whatever funds they need. Eisenhower, you know, we really should come to some sort of an agreement in order to stop this fruitless, really wasteful rivalry. It's amazing what can happen when two people sit down and talk, how much they can realize how similar they are versus how different they are. This is the start of a new relationship with the Soviet Union, but it won't get us to where we need to be. It takes decades of a Cold War and the failure of communism to accomplish that. We're at a point now where some people in this country seem to want to go back to those years I'd prefer to stay at least where we are and see if we can do better. My take by Jack Spearco. All right, folks, I want to remind you about the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade today. That's a great way that you can support the show and get a return of investment. We offer discounts to over 60 vendors. There's a lot of video content that you can't get anywhere else. We do video all of our workshops from this point going forward. There's hours of video on our workshops in there for MSB members only. And yes, you can download them. Every episode of the Survival Podcast ever produced in convenient zip files. So you can start with episode one and binge out all the way up to episode 2000 and beyond very, very soon. That's all available, and it's all available for a cost that comes down to 18.3 episodes per day, $50 a year. And you can try the membership out for as little as $5 a month. If you have not yet become a member, please consider supporting the show as a Support Brigade member today. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show and uh, start by taking a look at uh, what happened this weekend for Jack. So uh, I took Thursday off and ran a rewind because, one, I was already having these voice problems and knew that I needed to give my voice a rest. And two, because I had a lot of things I wanted to get done here on the farm before I went away Friday and Saturday and then came back Sunday afternoon for uh, hog hunting. Here's the short description. I did not shoot a hog. 
I did not see a living hog the entire time that I was there. Um, many of our party, I think all but one other than me, took a hog of our party of eight, and there was about another eight people at this place, and I think most of them got a hog. Um, there was the, the guy that owned the place really did a good job of trying to make sure that everybody got a chance to take a hog, other than just sitting on feeders. He did some pretty cool stuff with stocking and uh, even some thermal hunting and stuff like that. But there was a limited number of people that could do that. And I, you know, I was with this group of guys that I hunted with um, uh, a couple months ago, I guess a month ago, and uh, there was a bunch of us out there, and I was the only one that took a deer. No one else took anything. So I kind of felt like you guys take the extra opportunities and kind of deferred on those. And I was just happy to sit out there, drink beer with some good guys, sit around the campfire, spend some time in the blind. And I had a, a one blind that I was in, I had what I came to call my, my pet squirrels. Uh, they throw corn from feeders there. And these three squirrels spent literally the entire day eating corn. I should have took uh, my buddy David's suppressed 22 and we could have had campfire squirrel uh, without scaring off the pigs. But... Uh, That didn't happen. Anyway, uh, the good news is my bud David that was with me that helped set this whole thing up um, got a pretty nice pig, uh, though one of the front legs had to be discarded because it had been gored by another hog. Uh, but it's a significant amount of meat, and it will be on the menu uh, for the Saturday evening meal at the workshop coming up at the end of March this year here in Texas. So uh, there will be wild hog, though I didn't shoot it. David uh, did the honors on that one. This one comes from Michael. And uh, it has to do with um, a composting system that I came up with uh, many years ago. It's in a video series uh, that's for MSB members only. It's pretty cool. It's, it uses three uh, tough bin garbage cans and uh, cut some holes in it with a hole saw and put some pipe in the center. And it's a three-stage system, and it's designed to... Uh, To allow composting when you don't have large amounts, you kind of would be better served by a worm bin, but you don't want a worm bin or it's not practical for you or whatever uh, because it, it moves in stages. And here's what he said. Jack, love the show and the MSB. I built a three trash can compost bin system that you have on your website. I went to take the compost in the third bin out and use it in the garden. However, I discovered that it was a huge ant colony throughout the compost. Two questions. Is it okay to just use the compost with the ants throughout the garden? Is there any way to keep the ants from building a colony? Thanks for all you do, Michael. Is there any way to keep the ants from building a colony? Um, fire ants are the bane of our existence in, in the South, and specifically in Texas. Um, it's, it's unbelievable how prolific they are, how many there are, and how they get into everything. The only way I've ever found to keep ants out of something is either one, you put it on like center blocks stood in a kiddie pool of water, and that's usually effective, though I've seen them build bridges, I've seen them drop down from trees, uh, I've seen them use their dead to make bridges, I, I've seen all kinds of things, but that usually is effective. Uh, the other way is, for instance, we have the grow beds uh, with many worms in them in my aviary, And they're up on stands, and the ants could certainly get up and into there, but the open area around there is surrounded by little quails who eat little bugs. And while they're not going to dine on ants heavily, uh, the fact that when the scouts go in there to look for something, they get eaten kind of just makes them never find it. So those types of solutions are what you'd have to look for. So one way to do this might be if you have an area that is inhabited by your chicken run, you could locate them in there. That would be another option that I think. But, I mean, you really... You have to go out of your way to keep get rid of ants. The good news is the compost, of course, is not ruined, but but no, you shouldn't take that compost and put it on your garden. 
Ants are a lot like bees, and uh, they are worse than bees if, if you want to look at them as a, from a problem standpoint of getting rid of them. Uh, unlike bees, fire ants won't have a queen. They might have multiple queens, and there are generally there's the ability for uh, a segment of a colony to actually have a queen or the potential to produce a new queen and then create a new colony. So just like with bees, where you could go out and take your hive and put half the bees in one hive and half in another hive and end up with two hives, you can do that with ants, especially fire ants, but even more so. They are incredibly good at reconstituting themselves. So what we must do is we must kill them. We must kill them all mercilessly. And we must do it in a way that will not harm our compost. So what we're going to do is use a product called Antifuego. I'll put a link in the show notes today. The only place I know that sells it is Gardenville. Uh, I'll also put a link to uh, Howard Garrett, the Dirt Doctor's website, where he tells you how to make it yourself if you don't want to buy it. And we're going to use it as the directions call out. We're going to measure it to a gallon to two gallons, and we're going to drench this finished compost in it. The only thing in it that can cause some problems for your plants is orange oil. I've used it on living plants many times, and it's never really had much of a problem. However, when we planted uh, four apple trees, uh, we were removing these uh, the, the ear pans from trees that, that didn't make it the year before. And when we dug those out, they all four of them were just rife with fire ants. So we poured the Antifuego on them, a.k.a. murder juice, and one of the three trees didn't make it. Now, these were dormant trees, and uh, the three other trees that did make it are doing very well now took a lot longer to come out of dormancy than the same trees planted elsewhere. These were Antonovka apples. So I planted the Antonovka apples elsewhere, and they came out of dormancy, and they started growing much faster. So I think it kind of shut them down and stunned them, and that would have been from the orange oil. However, this doesn't last. It's not persistent. The way this works, it uses compost tea, uh, orange oil, and molasses. And when you pour it on a fire ant mound in the ground, what it does is the, the orange oil basically melts the ant's exoskeleton and kills them all, including the queens. And then the um, molasses and compost tea attract beneficial microorganisms that consume the ant corpses and actually improve the soil. It's actually a soil conditioner. But since I've had results where there can be some adverse effect from the use of the orange oil, what I would advise you to do, mix the murder juice, pour the murder, murder juice on the ants, murder the ants. Okay, once the ants are good and murdered, take the compost out of the compost bin, uh, give it a good mixing up, and give it about a week. Just give it about a week. It'll only get better, and then go ahead and use it. And I would say any kind of compost bin where you have this problem with an infestation of fire ants, this would probably be the best way to handle it. I do not like using insecticides, even somewhat surgical insecticides like andro. Andro fire ant bait, you put it out, they eat it, they feed it to the queen, she dies, they all die. Yee-hoo, yeah. If you're going to use an ant poison, that's probably the best commercial poison to use. I won't use it, though. The Antifuego is the best thing that I've found to deal with this problem. We'll never eradicate all our fire ants, but it gives us the ability to control them, and I highly recommend it, or you make your own. Again, I'll have links for both options in the show notes. Uh, before we move on, I want to also say that I found a video with Howard Garrett showing how to use the uh, drench formula, 
And also, he talks about, and I, there's an article I put up that has other methods of organic control. And one of the things he says is putting out dried molasses is very effective at controlling uh, fire ants. Because as the biological activity in your soil increases, they move on out of town. They don't like all the beneficial nematodes and things like that. And that may be true somewhere. It has not been true for me. Um, all I've seen happen where I've put out dried molasses is fire ants eat it. Um, I still put it out. I don't think it makes more fire ants by a long shot. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that that may or may not work for you in, in an overall management program. It doesn't necessarily help a person with it in the compost anyway. But I have not seen fire ants uh, offended by dry molasses at all. And again, he's not saying they are. He's saying it's the biological activity. So you might want to try that if you're having fire ant issues as well. But you know, your jury may uh, be different than uh, mine or his. All right, next one. It's uh this is a, a one from a guy named Tim. He says, I was binge watching Star Trek Voyager and there was a remarkable thing said and he, he even went to the masses. Season two, episode eighteen, Death Wish. Basically it's a Q episode. Um he says he believes I know what he means, and I do, but uh, for those that aren't Trek people, I'll tell you what a Q is. A Q is this race of beings that if one of them appeared before you could do a damn good job of convincing you that that it's God himself. They can be anything, be anywhere. They can move through space and time. They can cause anything to happen. They can completely change your reality. Um, they are an omnipotent race, okay? Um, so you know that, right? So basically it's a Q episode. One of the Q wanted to end his life, and the other Q, the state, would rather he be left in isolation for eternity for basically going against the state's wishes. Captain Janeway is the judge, and they went to the continuum to show what life was like for an immortal. Um, the individuals, and then there's a quote from the uh, the episode: "The individuals' rights will be protected only so long as they don't conflict with the state. Nothing is so dangerous to society. The individuals' rights will be protected only so long as they don't conflict with the state." Nothing is so dangerous to society. Um, I'm not going to read all the additional details for brevity today, but he goes on to give a synopsis of it. Again, if you want to actually watch the episode, you can look it up wherever Star Trek Voyager is available, including Netflix, Season 2, Episode 18, Death Wish. But I want you to think about how many times that's been the view of the state at varying levels, from very small local versions of the state, like towns and, and boroughs, to the federal government. That you have rights. That's what they always say. They lead with the, you have rights and we're here to protect your rights until they conflict with the state. Until your rights conflict with what we say. You have a right to privacy and, uh, until we want to see what you're doing. So your right to privacy, you have a right to privacy from your neighbor, but not from me on the state. You understand that? And that is a viewpoint that's becoming more and more true in the world today and in America today. And, and I'll say some comments on this for a later segment on the unincorporation of a town and a comment that I saw somebody make about that. And it just, it, it defies logic to me that people could think this way, but more and more they are. And I think this is why, and, and honestly, the people that are the, the most extreme in the statist world today are, are the, the, the left. The right's bad too. Don't, don't take, but the people that are like been clamoring more and more and more and more for government to do this and government to do that and government to do the other thing are, are the left more so than the right. And the left is losing their shit right now because Donald Trump's president. I mean, 
the next thing you know, you're going to hear, you know, we're, to protest Trump, we're going to jump off a building or something. Uh, that's how freaked out these people are. And you think it would start to wake them up a little bit. If you're so concerned because Donald Trump is president, then maybe the problem is the president has too much power. Because all of a sudden, you, what you want is in conflict with the state. And no longer is it acceptable for you to force that on others or even to have it the way that you want it for yourself. And, and that's what states do. States exist as institutions primarily for the purpose of uh, uh, of actually preserving themselves. That is actually what is, I don't care what the intentions of the founders of a state are. Once the state comes into existence, it will act almost like a life form. It will preserve its own existence. It will assert its dominance. It's a lot like fire. Fire in the state can both be compared to life forms, even though neither one is technically a life form. So what I mean by that is fire reproduces. It causes offspring, more and more fires. It consumes food and it produces waste. And if you try to put it out, it will attempt to survive. It will attempt to keep going. You really have to kill it to kill it. The state consumes resources and produces waste. It, it, it seeks to survive, and it replicates itself and multiplies. The, the, when we, we talk about the dangers of artificial intelligence and things like that, from a technology standpoint, that's what we say. The self-replicating machines that can think for themselves could be dangerous to mankind. And we, we fail to see the irony that we've been building those for a very long time in the, simply in the form of the state. And much like a fire, they will consume as much resource as necessary to continue to exist. And the damage done is irrelevant to the urge to survive, the need to assert itself, to view that the individual's rights will be protected only so long as they don't conflict with the state. And I'll say this about Star Trek, like, like Tim was surprised they even let this on the air. Star Trek, from the very beginning, has always been about reality plays. I can't remember, what's her name's name, the one that played uh, the communications officer, uh, Uhura. What was the actress's name? Uh, Nichelle, Nichelle Nicholas, right? Um, I was listening to, like, a behind-the-scenes type documentary on Star Trek, And uh, they had her on, and she said it was a, you know, like about halfway into the first season of the original series, which, ironically, I think only landed or lasted three years and became this cultural icon with many spinoffs. And she she was talking to Gene Roddenberry, of course, the creator, and she said, "We're actually doing reality plays, aren't we?" And he said, "Shh, don't say that." Right. He knew what he was doing the whole time, and he was using this sci-fi show to bring up culturally sensitive issues at the time, like women's rights and race relations. And Star Trek continued to do that through all its incarnations. And it's been, uh, I think it's been able to do so because it exists in such a fictional universe that you look really stupid taking anything seriously. Although I do remember certain civil rights groups when Avery Brooks was cast as the commander in uh, Deep Space Nine saying, it's about time, it's about time we had a lead in Star Trek that was black. Like, I think at that time it was the third series 
Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah, political correctness and stupidity. Uh, anyway, uh, the more you learn, the more you realize things stay the same. Oh, that's why we study history. Anyway, uh, that's an interesting one there. Thanks for sending that in, Tim. Here's a question I have. It says, uh, from Outdoor Fury, it says, Would you do a show or a segment on how to find and deal with contractors' rules, etc.? The Gary Collins show made me think about it. Uh, I wish there was an easy answer. I wish I could give you the 10-point guide to dealing with contractors and your life will never suck, but there's not. I'll, I'll tell you, one of the best sources we've found of contractors has been for us next door, uh, or anything like that, where you need somebody to do something. Because now it's your neighbor saying, I use so-and-so, and he worked out really well. But what happens is if that person's been doing business in your area, maybe he did a good job for Joe, but Tom, Bill, and Frank all say he sucks. And you would never even know that, but as soon as you post the, the thing and somebody gives you a name, don't immediately call them. Just wait. Let that, that post on. Again, it's called Nextdoor, nextdoor.com. It's like Facebook for your neighborhood. If there's not one for your neighborhood, you can set one up and get one started. And and we've seen things like that. Well, you know, so-and-so did a great job for me. And like five other people tried to go, no, no. And it turns out to usually be something like you gets overbooked and overly busy and then things slip. So you can decide whether you want to you know work with that or not. So that's been one. Um, I, I used to think Angie's List was a good thing, but now they charge you to basically use it as a user. Um I, I'm not so much about that, but you can generally find decent people through that and, and get legitimate reviews on them, though it would work much better if only the uh, the providers had to pay a fee for that because there would be more use and therefore more reviews. Um, this is a big one, though. Once you think you're going to use Contractor XYZ, do a search for them online, do a search for them at the Better Business Bureau, etc., And if the Better Business Bureau says they have a 100% rating or some A rating, or that doesn't mean shit. Read the reviews of people that dealt with them. Because the Better Business Bureau is almost worse than useless in some ways. Because if, a cust if, a, if, a, if the person being reviewed is a member, and they say this is how we handle shit, even if it's completely ridiculous, and the Better Business Bureau says, well, they did what they say they do, even if it's in the fine print, they don't ding them for it. So it's more important to know what that person actually does. And a lot of times they'll hide shit in their contracts. And as long as they can present to the Better Business Bureau that, hey, we put this in a contract, it's a contract the guy signed, we did everything we're required to do under our own contract, Better Business Bureau will leave them an A-plus rated company. Okay? So here we go. What we want to do then is go see is there any scuttlebutt. Has customers complained about them, and has the the contractor slash company responded to those in a reasonable manner or not? And if not, then don't use them. What they've done to someone else, they'll do to you. So in the finding, it's really about there's. It's easy to find contractors. We then begin to eliminate them. They need to have been around long enough to have a track record. And once we determine that what that track record is, we can make a determination of whether or not we want to go forward with them. Now here's where we go from here. As we said in the episode, unless it's something like Lowe's doing, you know, with a contractor installing flooring where you're buying the flooring and then they're sending the con, unless it's like that, if I'm independently setting something up, let's say that I decide I want to redesign a bathroom and I want new tile on the floors, I want new fixtures, I want the bath done this way, I want stonework, I, I can figure out everything I want. 
and I bring in a contractor to bid the job. And he says, this is how much the job will be. Great, break that in on labor and materials for me. And they, they generally do that anyway. When can you start? When can you finish? Do you have any references? You know, things like that. We've checked them out. We've seen the past muster. We've gotten bids from multiples. We're down to the guy we think we're going to work with. When can you start? Great. What do we need to get started? And he'll say something usually like, well, half down. No, sir. No, sir. That's not happening. Because I imagine you need the half down for the materials. Yes. Okay. Give me the list of materials. I will call Lowe's and I will buy the material and I will have it delivered right here. It'll be sitting here waiting for you when you start. I need assurance that you're going to pay you know, on the labor. Great. When we can both look at the fact that we agree that you're 50% done with the job, I'll pay you your 50%. My incentive is at that point, my set, I'm in disarray. I need the job completed. Your incentive is to get to half as fast as possible, which makes you finish faster, which makes all of us happy. I'll pay you 50% of your labor as progress billing when you're 50% through with the job. I'll pay you the balance due on it when you're done with the job. I don't work that way. Then I don't have to hire you. I will get somebody else that will. And I'm sorry, that's it. That's how I am. If anything... If I'm really confident in what they're doing, I might be willing, and they have a good track record and good reviews and stuff like that, I might be willing to pay them 50% of their labor at the start of the job. If I've worked with them before, and they've taken care of me before, 50% of the labor at the start of the job, sure. I will not give them money for materials. I will not give them a portion or the total of money for materials. Because I give you the money, and there's no guarantee the materials will show up. The one guy I had a problem with, he couldn't he couldn't afford the materials to finish the job because he spent my money on another job. If I buy the materials and you bail on me, then I just get another contractor to come in and use the materials to finish the job. If I give you money for the materials and you don't deliver the materials, then I have to buy the materials to get the job finished. And what happens inevitably is they never buy all the materials at the start of the job. They bring in part of the materials, and then they, they piece part it out. And that's contractor cash flow management. They want you to be their bank. I'm not doing that for you. I'm not doing that for you. As a salesman, I was actually pretty good at getting customers to do it for the company I worked for, but I'm not doing it for you the other way around because it was different situations. We're not talking about homeowners here. We're talking about corporate-to-corporate -corporate business which is a lot different than commercial-to-consumer business. The next thing is, I need a schedule from you with agreed-upon completion of phases. Now, if the guy's going to come in and put up a fence, he's going to do it in a day. This is a different situation then. then and if, if, in that situation, you tell me what you need, I'll buy the materials, I'll be sitting here, you come, you do the job, I pay you at the finish of the job. You know? I want 50% down before I start. The day you show up and you start, you dig your first post hole, I'll give you 50% down of your labor. And then when you're done, at the end of the day, I'll pay you. That, that's We don't need to get into phases in progress. But we need to, when you're doing a kitchen remodel, a bathroom remodel, something like that, we need to sit down and together agree, or you write up the contract and I'll review it, either or, of what should be done by certain days. So that we can both look and acknowledge, yes, we're behind, ahead, or on schedule. And I'm going to hold you to that schedule. 
Yes, things happen without uh, the ability of either one of us. We open that wall or something in there we didn't expect. It takes longer. But we'll discuss that and we'll adjust the schedule. This is how you're going to work with me. If you don't want to work with somebody that works this way, go somewhere else. I will find another contractor. Because you will scare away all the shitty contractors that way. You're going to pay more money this way. You're absolutely going to pay more money for the job this way up front, or let's say as the, the initial sticker price, you will pay less money long term because a shitty contractor is always going to find a reason to say you need to come up with more capital. He'll lowball the job and upsell you through the job into things that you never wanted or didn't need, but he'll convince you you need them or you now you have to have them. That's how I deal with contractors. And I let them know right up front, you're going to be working, and I say the exact words, you're going to be working for an asshole. I'm an asshole. When things that are promised are not delivered exactly the way that they were promised. Now, when things are delivered as promised, when promised, and everything is done in a reasonable way, I don't act like an asshole. But what you need to understand is underneath the surface, I am 100% asshole all the time. But I'm a fair asshole. And if you don't like that, don't take my work. And you'll have guys say, I don't need this shit, and walk away. Thank God they left. And I wasn't this way with this last guy. Because sometimes I can be mean and, you know, calm down a little bit and whatever. And so you listen to other people. And then the, the very first time you back off of it. You end up in a situation where the way, and in the end, it was good work. Everything got done that was supposed to get done. We didn't pay for anything we shouldn't have paid for. But I had to threaten to sue the guy. And I had to make it real for him. I had to make him understand, you will be under subpoena by the end of the week. You will have to show up. Oh, and what I didn't include in that show. Turned out this guy had a nasty track record that if I would have looked harder, I would have found, which I didn't. My fault. But he's a moving asshole. So he started in Arizona where his, where his company is incorporated. And uh, then he went to Oklahoma, and then he went somewhere in the Northeast, and then he came to Texas where he's been for two years doing business under the name of a corporation um, that is an Arizona corporation. Hmm. I started thinking about the way this guy shittily managed his cash flow. And I don't know if I would have ever done it or not, but I did note to him, When's the last time you filed a tax return in the state of Arizona for your corporation? Got his attention. So, you don't yell when, you, when you're in a bind with a contractor. This is important. You don't yell and scream. You don't make threats. Something I talked about in an episode recently was when people have the power and they have power over you, the most terrifying things is when they don't get upset and they're very calm about the way they express themselves. I need you to finish what you started. I'm not giving you another dime until you're finished. This is how and when and where you will be sued if you do not finish this. I do not need a lawyer, but Tarrant County says you do. It'll cost you more to defend yourself than you owe me right now. I will do this if you don't simply do what we agreed you would do, what we agreed you would be finished with three weeks ago. You took my money. I don't want to hear about your problems. 
By the way, I noticed that you're actually incorporated in Arizona, and I'm just wondering the last time you filed taxes in Arizona was. And silence. Followed by, I'll take care of it. And when he showed up the next day, he, again, like I said last week, he told me, I had to take a personal loan to, to be able to buy these materials. So what? I don't give a shit. Get the work done. Get the work done. I don't owe you anything for that. If I would have followed my own rules, that guy would have never been the one to do the work. And the truth is, the reason he was is because he was a friend of a friend who was partially involved with him. And I, I, I went away from my rules because the guy who I thought was actually an equal partner to him and what they were doing was a personal friend that I trusted. Be careful with shit like that. Be very careful. And my friend is still my friend. I don't blame him for any of this. I blame myself. Because I should have been the same asshole that I always am. And here's the thing. Nice guys get walked on in this world. Assholes, you either get what you paid for, when you paid for it the right way, or you find someone else. Because the people that are going to screw you, they don't want to deal with you. They want to go deal with the, the, the person who's going to let them walk all over them. That's my rules for dealing with contractors. And I've heard from some pissed off contractors like Gary was mentioning since that show uh, to me personally. I don't want to hear sob stories. I don't want to hear shit. I don't want you to hear, you know, the, the, the stereotyping or whatever. Listen, some of you guys do great work. If you really do great work, nothing that I've said should offend you. You should be like, that's my dream client. We'll completely understand each other. He'll never think one thing's happening when something else is happening. You know? We'll never not understand each other. We'll always be able to agree on what the problem is and how to fix it. If you don't feel that way, I don't want your business, and uh, you need to think about your business. Let's take another one. How about some political correctness? This is from John. John says, theme, PC atmosphere in corporate America. Cliffs, I'm in a big four accounting auditor uh, who encounters retarded levels of PC in the professional environment. Story, I just clocked out here in Florida at 11 p.m., After a 14-hour workday, I work about 75 hours a week during the busy season and from January to March. 1231 financial statements filings are published on February and March. Right as I was leaving, my boss asked me, now think about this, it's 11 o'clock at night. The guys just work 14 hours. He's knocking out uh, 75-hour-plus weeks. His boss asked him as he leaves if he had read the firm's email about Black History Month. When I replied, I don't read anything that's not immediately client audit related. I might get 30 emails a day, only a third of which are actually necessary for me to accomplish my work. She proceeded to rag on me, as did two of my coworkers. This is how far PC attitudes are getting. I already shy away from discussion about politics and guns. But if I even admit that I didn't read the Black History Month email, I get a holier-than-thou attitude from my boss and coworkers. I didn't vote for Trump, but BS like this makes me understand how many people can. Thanks for all you do, John. John, um, you've nailed it. People wonder, how did, how did Donald Trump become president? This is exactly how. Okay, first of all, your boss and these other two freaking idiots, if they were working as hard as you, wouldn't have time to be standing around asking you at 11 p.m. when you're leaving if you read a freaking email. That doesn't pertain to your work. doesn't have a damn thing to do with your work. It's not necessary. It's not important, especially during a time when you're working 75 hours. 
Now, I tended, when I worked for um, uh, companies, to read every email that came, even ones that I didn't think were important, during times when that was possible, which for me, being mostly in sales and marketing, was seldom, if ever. But I never had anybody ask me about it. Of course, I never spent much time in the office either. But this is a symptom of the mental damage that has been done to America with political correctness. It's Black History Month. First of all, I'm sorry, I don't see the point of Black History Month. Right? I think all history is important, including the history that was contributed by people who happen to be black, who happen to be white, who happen to be red or yellow or gay or straight or religious or atheist. I think all history is important. And I think focusing on specific segments of history at specific times is interesting. But a month? A month? That nobody really does anything as well, except write up a company email that people are supposed to read so everybody feels good about it. See, people will tell you that, well, it is important because there's these contributions made by African Americans who, who, who have not been uh, recognized. Well, how long have we had this thing? I remember when I was a kid. I remember when I was a kid. Don't you think we've recognized most of those people through that by now? Or, or it doesn't work. Or it doesn't work. The only way this nation is going to ever begin to actually fulfill the promise that exists underneath it, the potential we have, is for a few things to happen. And one is for extremists on both sides to shut the F up and go off and form extreme left and extreme right land somewhere in the middle of the ocean. Seriously. And when, you, when I say extremists, you either know what I mean or you're pretending not to. We'll have a segment on that in a little bit anyway to clarify for you. The other is for us to begin to see each other simply as Americans, not as African Americans or Caucasian Americans or European Americans or you know Mexican Americans or gays or straights. We're all people. We're all just freaking people. And all the stuff that's supposed to empower people of different races and whatever, all it actually does is actually make their plights worse because people are tired of having shit thrown in their face that most people don't really care about. When you hear the constant accusations of racism from the left. And the guy that's hearing this, this white guy that's hearing this, thinks, I work my ass off. I work my ass off 75 hours a day in an accounting firm. I don't even look, look my head up enough to see what color the guy next to me is. I don't care. I work in numbers. I come home, I take care of my kids and my wife, and I go on with my life. I don't need this shit. Or I work my ass off in a plant or a factory. I'm surrounded by people of all colors and races. We all get along. I'm tired of your shit. And the truth is, the worst racists at the institutional level in this country are leftists. And they, they play this card to agitate the situation and classic leftist neo-fascism. And you'll tell me about this redneck you know that's a racist that hates black people, and I think he's an asshole. I think he's a, I think he's, I think he's a, a piece of shit. And if he, if, he, if he spouted off with his shit to me, personally, I'd tell him, you're a racist piece of shit. That doesn't make the person who uses a more sophisticated method of racism less of a piece of shit. It just simply makes them a more sophisticated piece of shit. And that's where all of this PC crap comes from. And young people, easily manipulated by it, 
that are doing stupid shit, but for what they believe are the right reasons. And you can't explain this to them. They won't listen. They won't listen because some professor that's at a school that their dad's paying 20 grand a year for them to go to, or they're borrowing 20 grand a year to go to, or more, said so, and it must be true, because why else would he be there if it wasn't true? Yeah. <laughs> we got a long way to go as a society. Um, on that note, <clears throat> the guy says, uh, hey, Jack, this is from uh, John, not different John, this one's spelled the J-O-N versus J-O-H, I know last John. Uh, question for Jack. I have a question about city power and local secession. Details. You mentioned quite a deal on the show that you live in an area that is currently unincorporated. Now, I know that a city can annex unincorporated areas into their municipality, but is it possible for part of an area to reverse the process and become unincorporated? And if that is possible, how would a local community go about the process? Is it even possible for a group of like-minded property owners to secede from a city and become unincorporated? Thanks in advance, John. It is. It happened in a very small town in Nebraska quite recently, uh, and it is called Seneca, Nebraska. And I believe the vote uh, to unincorporate was something like 17 to 18. Uh, there's an article in the Omaha World Herald, and of course they're talking about this like this is a horrible thing. Um, but what happened basically was there was a there was a guy in this town keeping horses, and he may have been an asshole, I, I don't know, but he was keeping these horses in an area that was too small for as many as they were. They were apparently up to their knees in muck, and it was creating kind of a stink and a problem. Well, instead of kind of like trying to figure out how to deal with that problem, they started to mull around the idea of simply outlawing livestock in, in, in the town. This is a town where quite a few people had livestock, and again, a town of probably, you know, when you had kids and people that don't vote, maybe maybe 80 people-ish at the most, the top end, probably more like 40 or 50, right? And um, so while they're mulling this around, they find that there's actually an old law on the books that prohibited livestock in town. It just had never been enforced. So after discussing that for a while, they decided to just enforce the existing law. And that way they could get rid of these horses. Well, the people of the town that had livestock or thought other people should be able to have livestock, as you can imagine, flipped the hell out. And a, 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 an elderly lady who um, really was pissed off about this started circulating a, a petition. And in a town that size, you don't need many. She had 13 signatures to put on the, the, the next election a vote to unincorporate the town. And there was a lot of fighting and yelling and everybody sucks and that guy's a child molester and this guy beats his wife and this guy commits sodomy with horses and, you know, going on the whole thing. And um, But the vote came up 18 to 17 to secede, or not to secede, to unincorporate, which is different than secession, but I get the metaphorical secession. What's more interesting, though, to me is the comments, and I told a couple people in the comments just to troll them. They talk like a man, like a paper asshole. This is what one guy says. Hopefully it snows two feet in October with no city services to plow. Maybe the, the dissolution supporters will change their mind. Well, first of all, why do you, this guy is from uh, South Dakota. Why do you care what these people do? Why do you, this is why they did this, because of people like you that, 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 that want to control others. Okay, but... It snows here occasionally in Texas, believe it or not, and we actually aren't really set up to plow snow very well, um, but we do take care of the roads. And there's this thing called Tarrant County, because uh, we just don't have a town. We're still part of Tarrant County, and they plow the roads. And I'm sure if, if, if we had a private road 
that between all of us, we would figure out how to deal with, oh, wait, that's right. When I lived in Arkansas, also in an incorporated area, we had a private road. And the, all the people that lived there, because we didn't want a road to suck, would once every several years pay a guy with a bulldozer to grade out the road for us. And the county did the part that they were responsible for. And they did. our guy actually seemed to do it better. It was actually the same guy. But we had him do our piece of it more often, and it seemed like it was done better because it was done more frequently. So, like, if, if someone actually has a need, um, then, then they'll figure out a way to get it met. Because if this, and I doubt this town was ever doing snow plows anyway. But they, 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 the, the, the whole uh, article is written from this, 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 this sad standpoint. Uh, there used to be a community center, and now it's going to be auctioned off. Listen, if the people in this town want a community center, they don't need a government to have a community center. It's something you can be a private member of. And if you want to be a member, you get to pay for it. If you don't want to be a member, you don't get to pay for it. And if not enough people want to be members, then there's not a need for it, and you can meet at somebody's house. I mean, really, like you can't get you can't get there with just mental uh, logical thought, but apparently people can't. And there's another person that made a comment that I think talks like a man with a paper asshole. He said, "Seems to me that people who don't want to be told what to do shouldn't be living in town. If you don't want to be told what to do, you shouldn't be living in town." But see, these people lived in a town for decades. Well, what they were doing was perfectly acceptable, and when they moved there, they assumed it was okay because other people were doing it. And then people that didn't like the way one guy was doing it, blanket, said, no, you know, no one can do it. And the person who wrote the article sounds like an idiot, too. You would think that dissenters would have tried to change the law or make it only apply to, why would they? When you're sitting there minding your own business, and it's always been this way, and all of a sudden half of the people are saying, you can't do that anymore. Or your friend can't do it, because you don't do it, but you think your friend should be able to. So here's the interesting thing. This all started because the person that had a problem with the horses called the, the county and the state and was told, it's a township matter. You guys deal with it. Well, I think it seems to be lost on everybody. Now that there is no town, if that's actually a case of animal abuse or cruelty or something like that, where it legitimately is an animal welfare or a human welfare uh, problem, They actually have their solution now. Now the bigger arm of government, the county, will come in and enforce the county's regulation on things like that because there isn't a town there. Because there isn't a town there. Now, it may be that the county has no teeth. It may be that the story of the horses being up to their armpits and muck and all is bullshit because I don't buy it. Horses can't live that way. So it sounds like it's a little over-dramatized in the first place. But, but here's how I feel about this whole concept. I think this is a totally valid concept, but again, I think the problem is that too many people believe that most people want freedom and liberty. I think you'd have a hard time in most towns getting people to even consider the option of, do we really need a city or a town here? Can't we just all live here and be left alone? But it certainly can be done because it has been done. It has been done. So how would you go about getting it started? I think, well, you have to have a reason for people to want to do it. And the reasons to the negative have to outweigh the reasons to the positive for the majority of people. Because people would say things like, well, we have a great local police force. Really? Why do you say that? We have low crime. Okay. 
Do we have low crime because of our great local police force? Or do we have low crime because of our area? Do the other people around us have high crime rates? Not on the other side of the, 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 the county or the state, but people immediately adjunct, you know, close to us. And if you're, if you're even considering this, this, this concept, you better be near other unincorporated areas or, you know, you'll, you'll unincorporate your city and the larger city will suck you up. Right? So you have to be somewhere where you're insulated from that. But when you, you know, they say, well, how will this get done? Well, how does it get done? Because this is what I would say. If I was a lakeside resident, which is a little city, little town, not far from me of about 1,300 people, and I see all the shit on next door that they have to deal with, like guy, a guy getting fined for parking a car in his own grass, his car in his own grass, because it's against the town law. Yeah. And I would say, why, why do you need that? Why do you need that? And, and when they say, well, you know, crime rates, okay, well, There's people that live right down there where that crazy spiritual guy lives. Is their crime any higher than ours? No? Okay. So how would we uh, take care of getting the snow cleaned up off the streets? Does the snow get cleaned up off the streets down where that crazy guy lives? It does? Really? How's that happen? You know? What is it that the city brings to the table that we couldn't do ourselves or wouldn't be absorbed by the county? And once you get through, you actually have to do that first to then start saying, and then you wouldn't be bothered with this and you wouldn't be bothered with that. I mean, the other thing would be taxes. How much of our tax bill goes to the city? City's not a, you know, not, not something that just exists. We all pay for it. So how much money would go back in everybody's pockets? And then people could make discretionary decisions about how they spent their money. And you might find people like, we want our neighborhood within the city to, to remain this. And we don't want people, well, you guys want, you guys form an HOA. And us over here, we're not going to do that. We're not going to use the state as our HOA. You want your own private little, oh, you can't get enough of your neighbors to go in on it with you? Maybe that's because you're the, you're the, you're the pain in the ass blue hair. But I think it would be very difficult. And I, I think you'd have to have pretty small towns for it to ever even have a hope. Because what did I say earlier about the state? Whether it's the big state, little state, middle state, adjunct state, right? It self-preserves. It self-preserves. South Dakota, or it was either South or North Dakota a couple years ago, had an opportunity to outlaw property tax in the state. It went to a vote on the general ballot. And it actually didn't pass, and they still have uh, property tax. I mean, if you gave me a resolution on a Texas ballot to outlaw property tax and say you can no longer tax property in the state of Texas, even me, I'd go to the polls. I'd vote that year. And I'd drag people with me. You know what? It would probably fail. The guy paying four or $5,000 a year in property tax would probably st- still over half of them would vote yes to keep it. And all of the people with rental properties would say, it doesn't affect me, and my kids get to go to a nice school because of it, so they would vote for it as well, being too dim to understand that they're paying property tax through their rent. Because your landlord doesn't pay it for you, he just puts it on your bill, and you pay it for him. But our society is so dumbed down, while this idea can be done, I think it would be very, very difficult. By the way, the story of... A story from Seneca, Nebraska is from 2014. I don't know what the status is now because it mentions two uh, court cases that were being done to try to intercede with it. Well, let's go to another one. 
Okay, this one comes from David. David says, a few years ago, you were excited about a driveway alert system, which you said was better than any others. It was robust and will let you know if someone came to your property. Thanks. Hold on. I did say it was robust. I did say I liked it. I was excited about it. I still think it's a great product. It doesn't work as well for me now because of the way my property is set up with perimeter fencing. Um, but <clears throat> I never said it was better than any other. Let's, let's just be clear about it. It's a good solution if it fits you. It's a great solution if it fits you. There was a guy named Rob. And Rob came to me about oh, maybe three or four months in and agreed to sell me some equipment at cost for some exposure on the show before there even was a sponsor segment. Uh, he was running a Yahoo group on MERS or MERS, depending on how you say it, radio equipment. And what MERS is, is it's, um, it's an unlicensed radio frequency, set of frequencies. There's four main frequencies and like, I think it's like 10 sub frequencies within each frequency. And what I mean by a license, you don't need a ham license to use it. It has a range about like the GMRS, family radio stuff, but it's very uh, seldom used. It's not something a lot of people use, so it's less likely to be monitored. And uh, Rob sold the handhelds, a base station that sits on your table, the motion detectors, and a few other accessories for the product. And that was the only thing he sold. And eventually he went out of business because trying to build a business like that on a single product, once you've sold to somebody, you don't have anything to sell to them next. Right, and electronics margins are kind of thin, and then when you look at them, they're on Amazon today, and uh, there's other sources you can get them from. It just wasn't going to happen. But he did okay for himself for a while. I think he went on to do some other things. So I stopped talking about them because he was no longer a sponsor. But I did use them for a number of years. I used them in Arlington mainly as an escape detection tool when I was trialing them from Rob, and I set them up at the parts of the, the fence where my dogs would go under and get out into the neighborhood. And uh, when they went over there, we'd have our little base station would come up and say, alert, sector one. And I'd go outside, and I'd catch them in the act. Well, what eventually happened is the dogs figured this out, and they never figured it out when they were trying to get away, but they figured out if they wanted a door to open, they would go over and set off the detector and then come to the door and wait to come in. So it actually became like the dog's bell, hey, I want to come back inside now. I also had them in certain parts of the front of my house so that if somebody came up onto my property, they set them off. We moved to Arkansas. We had a much larger property and a much greater security concern being so remote. So I had them set up, and I actually had multiple uh, detectors set to the same thing. You could have um, sectors uh, one, two, three, and four is how the, they're set up. They'll say alert sector one, alert sector one, alert sector three, like that. So all this is is there's a certain... Uh, frequency or, or, or certain me, uh, certain signal set along when the detector goes off. And you can change that. So it'll say sector one, sector two, sector three, sector four. So you can only have four of them, you'd think. But what you can actually do is set up two or three to cover an area, and then anything in that area will set it off. So we had some places, we had security concerns that we set them up. I also set them up down by my deer feeder, Because that would tell me there's deer down there or something's down there. And they're pretty cool. Here's the big thing with these. And there's a lot of people that don't like them. They say they don't work well. They get set off by nothing, whatever. Number one, wherever you mount it, it must be level. And in the words of Jeff Lawton from the permaculture world, level is an absolute. It either is or isn't. Okay? There's no such thing as mostly level. Level and not level are absolutes. 
it must be absolutely level. Because if it's tilted just a little bit up or a little bit down over distance, that magnifies. And you think it's pointed at two feet off the ground, but over at the maximum distance you expect it to detect from, it's pointed eight feet off the ground. And the reason that it's being set off by nothing is a bird flew through 50 feet away where it's 13 feet off the ground. Got it? Or it's pointed at the ground, and that creates problems when wind blows stuff and things like that. Okay? So we get it absolutely level. We get it at a height to detect the things that we're expecting to look for. And we need to point it at something. Trees, a wall, a building. There has to be a point to get reliable results where that signal is out and bouncing back. And it's looking for that interruption in that return. You do those two things, it works really, really good. It is not inexpensive, and you should make sure it really fits your needs before you buy it. And I would say for every 10 people that think it's a good idea, probably two to three it will be a good fit for. For instance, I use it, I still have the gear, and I use it occasionally here. When I had predator problems, he set it out, they would tell me that something was out there. But I, I, because I have so many animals running around, during the day it would just be set off constantly. So it's really good for gates if people would generally get onto your property without your permission through a gate. If people would generally jump a fence, it's not so useful. If you have a problem area where you keep having vandalism and you set them up around it, it can alert you to that specific. So that would be more of a, a, a one-off use. But I link to... Uh, the equipment on Amazon, like a, a search for it. So you can see motion detectors, radios, everything. And again, the product is by a company called Dakota Alert. I like it, but I like it if it fits the situation. Okay, let's take another one. So last week I had a guy write in about carrying a gun, wanted to know if his, his rig would fall under Castle Doctrine because he sleeps in it and things like that. Um, and I said, I didn't know. You should talk to a lawyer, but... You know, if it's a place that's publicly accessible, 3006 and 3007 would apply, which here in Texas is. If you have a, a concealed carry permit in Texas, now it's just a, a license to carry permit in Texas, uh, you can carry concealed or open. And if a business or any place doesn't want you to carry, they have to put up a sign. It's a very specific sign. 30.06 prohibits concealed carry. 30.07 prohibits open carry. So if they want to prohibit open carry, they put up the 3007 sign, but not the 3006 sign. And anywhere where, where those signs would need to be posted, your concealed carry or your license to carry permit would cover you. But the other stuff, like going into the refinery and all, I wasn't sure. Um, and uh, Andrew wrote in, who is a uh, certified uh, carry instructor uh, for the state of Texas, says, uh, bottom line, uh, There is no penal code which references state or federal code, but there's two things going on in this question. Facility restrictions and company vehicle. Labor code 52.062A and F both apply cause. I doubt he owns the truck either. Uh, you'll want to read 52.061 for context, uh, and context 52.062 is exceptions to the law. And I, I wrote it back and said, okay, Lots of numbers there. To clarify flatly, he'd be in violation of law due to the truck, his truck, to not being his truck and working for the company. However, if he did, uh, anyway, assuming a good shoot, the law's broken would be those below. It would have no bearing on the legitimacy of the self-defense situation. Basically what I said, except 3006 and 3007 don't apply due to employment status. 
Here's what he said. Correct with employment status. To clarify, I'm sure he doesn't own the 18-wheeler. So he would be opening himself up to legal risk there. He would also be opening himself up to risk by entering the refinery. Refineries and chemical plants have security checkpoints. You will most likely face charges if found in possession of a weapon in that facility. As I understand it, 3006 and 3007 would apply to areas and buildings outside the fence or secure area. You wouldn't try to get through a checkpoint at the airport, so don't add a chem plant either. Both the employer of the truck and the plant could try to pursue criminal trespassing charges. Doing some further research, I actually found out that the whole reason that the people that run the chemical plants and the refinery plants and all that do not allow the carrying of weapons is not because they're anti-gun. There's actually Texas state law making those restricted areas from firearms, except by actual security personnel for said areas. They are considered to be specific areas that have potential for risk of threat from things like terrorist activities and things, and that's the justification for it. Um, now, of course, the good guy is not the one that's going to do it, and the bad guy is going to bring the gun in anyway, but... That's the state's justification for this. And if you're going to be pragmatic, you can say, under their viewpoint and worldview, this makes sense. Because even if I'm a good guy, I could be bringing a gun in that could be for the purpose of being used by a bad guy without my knowledge. That would be one example of something that could go wrong. Um, so whether you think it should be this way or not, this is the way that it is. The places like this, the chemical facilities, refineries, etc., you can't bring your gun in no matter what permit or license you have, unless you're working in a capacity that involves carrying a weapon. Okay? Period. The end. Don't do it. You're going to end up with a freaking felony and ruin your life. Now, that's why I want to make sure I brought this up. Also, as we've covered before, your employer, as you, an employee, can put restrictions on your ability to carry, specifically while you're functioning as an employee. Their house, their rules type of thing. The solution to that is either you accept it as a restriction and a limit, And you do whatever you can to see your protection while you're there. Uh, or you choose to work for somebody else, which is often easier said than done. But that, that's the pragmatism here. This isn't my opinion. This is the facts of the law and me trying to make sure that people out there that listen to me don't end up in prison because of something I've said or have failed to say. Or because Jack thinks you should be able to carry a gun anywhere, I'm going to carry a gun anywhere. No, no. When I go to New York City, I don't carry a gun with me. I don't want to go to state prison, okay? Now, I also try to not go to New York City in the first place or New Jersey, right? But if I need to go, then as a pragmatist, I will go. It's important enough for me to go that I will accept the restrictions. It's important enough for me to have my job that I will accept the restrictions or I will go somewhere else and do something else where they don't apply to me. All right, let's take one more and we'll wrap up. Okay, this is something that was promised earlier and ties back to an earlier couple segments. This is from Tripp. Tripp says, Jack, I have a veteran brother-in-law who is an avid Trump supporter, which is fine, whatever, but he's been triggered by a post I put on Facebook. I know it seems so trivial, but the conversation we had afterwards enlightened me to a potential issue. Basically, I'll hit the headlights. Uh, he basically expressed to me, he believes we need to kill off the libs. To which I responded, so your solution is to kill fellow Americans for disagreeing with you. To which he said, I have a cousin and an aunt who are libs, 
and I would personally throw them off a cliff, ISIS-style, to which I was speechless. I apologize for this being so long, but his statement struck me. And I guess I'm just looking for your thoughts on how extreme people are thinking the conversation continued to a point which he was almost quoting Hitler. But I don't know, Jack. Maybe I'm, sh I'm just shocked that it's finally hitting so close to home, and I'm worried about what we're going to do to our family dynamic. He is also raising my two nieces. Sorry, sorry to drag on. I hope I'm able to get your thoughts on on this. Love your show and what you do, man. God bless. Well, first of all, your nieces are probably going to end up very, very left. In a free society, parents that are extremists generally create uh, offspring who are extremists to the opposite view. That's that's the truth. Because unlike a, 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 a theocracy, an Islamic state, where you can force a person to retain the ideology under threat of death for apostatism, right? Um, a person can, once they reach a certain age, rebel against you. Uh, a much more minor version, but this was something that happened that I, I saw telegraph from a thousand miles away. My nephew, Andy, had a girlfriend named Destiny, who was a year older than him. She was a senior when he was a junior, uh, and they had a great relationship. She was a pretty girl, and he was pretty happy to have his first real girlfriend, stuff like that. Well, she went to college in, in, in the south of the state somewhere, Texas State, or down by Houston, or San Antonio, or something like that. Um, and, and my immediate thought was, oh, she'll dump him within a week of leaving, right? And um, the reason was her parents were completely freaking nuts, They were the kind of parents that they monitor where your phone is and call you and ask you why you're there all the time. Um, one time we had uh, like a, 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 a summer thing here at my house, and Andy would be here, and so would Andy's father, who is a police officer, and his mother, who is a school teacher, and she wouldn't let her come because we were going to be swimming in the pool and she would be in a bathing suit around boys. Yeah. So why did she dump Andy? Andy had nothing to do with this. Because she was free. The second she was free, the second she was actually distanced by hours of distance from them, and an adult, and off doing her own thing and not living in their house, she was free. And she had never been free, and she knew damn well she wasn't going to not date boys in college. So being a good person, she cut the thread with my, my nephew and said, I I'm sorry, I don't think this is going to work at a distance. Anyway, I think it was two weeks. And that is a direct result of overbearing parents. So if you have this nutjob extremist dude, he's going to create leftist ideological, especially females. Especially females. Especially if they go to school. You know, if they go to college. I mean, so get, that's what he's doing. That's what extremism does. The, the extremist of one side, by its very nature, creates the extremism of the other side. It's like magnetism. And what I mean by that is, of course, you know, opposites attract in magnetism. So you would think that that's the thing. But when you take north and north on a magnet and you push together, they repel each other. And that's how extremism plays out. Extremism on the right creates extremism on the left, which is it's like a feedback loop. And that extremism on the left creates extremism on the right. And as I said earlier, Trump is a result of this. People, that, There's a lot of people that voted for Trump that they put it this way. I don't know if if he's the best guy to be president, but he's the best choice that I had, which is nothing new. But they're also saying, and I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. You could change what the it is for different people, but people are sick of it. They're sick of being called racist. 
They're sick of, of, of this social justice warrior stupidity. They're sick of race baiting. They're sick of the government. And, and, and the, the left is an extremist in, 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 in regards to the size and scope of the state. They want the state in everything. So people will accept somebody that spouts extreme positions in opposition to the alternate extreme position. Now, would this guy really throw people off a cliff ISIS style? He's probably an effing pussy, okay? And you should tell him Jack Spierko says he's an effing pussy. Because it's easy to say shit like that. But if you really believed it was that important, why aren't you throwing liberals off a cliff right now, let alone your own relations? This is this is this 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 bullshit posturing, peacocking. We should do this and we should do that because they're not. Fa it's like the Republicans. We will repeal Obamacare. Repeal and replace came along later. We'll repeal it. We have put multiple deaths uh, uh, bills on the president's desk over the years to repeal Obamacare. You give us a Republican president and we will repeal Obamacare. That's February 27th, assholes. Where's the bill to repeal Obamacare? Because now you actually got to own up to the other side of it. What are the consequences? It's easy to put that bill. I don't, don't think I'm an apologist for Obama. I never wanted Obamacare. I told you it was a disaster before it happened. I told you why they made it a disaster before it happened, okay? You know that if you're a long-term listener. But the, the left has a point when they say that because the right became spineless as soon as they had to own up to the consequences, The problem is mob mentality and extremism combined together. People that would never throw a brick through a shopkeeper's window for being a Trump supporter will throw a brick through a, Trump, a shopkeeper's window who's actually supporting their person when they're keyed up in a mob. And that's where this shit gets really dangerous. And it's how things like Hitler happen. And Trump's not your Hitler. Trump's not your Hitler. The danger is the blowback now, the swing to the left, and you'll get a leftist Hitler. I mean, seriously. And no, I don't mean people in concentration camps, but I mean the type of oppression that gets metaphorically attached to the Hitlerism of the world. Well, it can't be fascism, it's from the left. If you believe that, you're freaking retarded. And if I offend you by using that word, you're also retarded. It's mentally challenged. Good. Then that word no longer applies to the people you think it's offensive to. It applies to people like you that get offended by words. Okay? And you're part of this problem. And it, what's the problem is that this extremism actually creates the very thing that it supposes to oppose. What do you think this guy's veteran brother-in-law would say if there was somebody on the left saying that they needed to purge the world of all conservatives. He'd flip his shit. No one should even be allowed to say something like that. But what did we talk about last week? The greatest danger is a society in which that which is not okay for everyone else to do is okay as long as my side is in charge. That's a recipe for extremism. So as people say, well, you said Trump's not or Hitler is he an extremist. I don't know that he's an extremist, But he's in the direction of extremism. He's in the general direction. The electorate that put him in power is moving in the direction of extremism. He's more like a stepping stone in that direction. And 
I actually think a lot of stuff that Donald Trump has done since becoming president is, is as a pragmatist, decent, useful things. Removing regulations, moratoriums on new regulations. I mean, come on, you know, enforcing the border with existing law. The executive order prohibiting travel from the nations. I think the media got everything about it wrong on purpose. Mischaracterized it, etc. I don't know that it would do anything to protect us, but as a pragmatist, it's the president's prerogative. He was given the power a long time ago to do it, and the, the actual U.S. code that says he has it, that was passed by our Congress, says any class of alien for any reason at his discretion. That's the actual verbiage. So president clearly has the power to do it. Activist judges overturn it. And then this guy, this brother-in-law of yours, his reaction is to that. He's probably informed enough to know what I just said. And then you add it to his basic bigotry. And he's a veteran, so that makes it worse. Yeah, as a veteran, I can say that, right? We can talk about our own. The, the time I'm ready to just give up trying to talk to anybody, when you're talking about things like security and national defense and, and things that our government's doing that's wrong because we're, like, killing people in other countries and spying on people. Well, I'm a veteran, and I... Shut up. Shut up. You don't have special powers. I'm a veteran, too. I served overseas. So did I. You don't have special powers. We're men. We did jobs. We did the best we could under the circumstances. It doesn't justify tyranny. Our first oath was to prevent tyranny here at home. So don't give me your bullshit. Well, I'm a veteran. I don't give a shit. Not as it pertains to this. Otherwise, thank you for your service. Fine. Great. I'm glad you were morally upright enough that you believed in something enough to go do it. But sometimes the things you're asked to do damage you mentally. And rather than confront that damage, you take the anger and you want to direct violence at people that don't even know you and are probably aren't the ones causing your problem in the first place. That's extremism. And I believe it's a mental disorder on both sides of the spectrum. On absolutely both sides of the spectrum. I've been watching that man in the high castle. I've actually burned out the two seasons that are out waiting for season three. And it's a scary thing when you start to think about some of the justifications for things like forced sterilization and getting rid of certain people and things like that. Because what you think is, that's horrible, it's awful, it should never be done. But on some levels it would work. It would work for the people that were still here. That's extremism. And then it becomes, it's okay as long as my side's in charge. If something's not okay when someone else is in charge, it can't be okay when you're in charge. Or you're not fit to be in charge. You're not fit to govern. You're not fit to lead. You're not. You're just not fit. If I honestly believe that a person who's president should not do something and you put me in office, I wouldn't do it either. Even if I thought there was, there was some way that it could be beneficial or work. If I think it's morally wrong, I'm not going to do it. Because if it's morally wrong, it's always morally wrong. Not just when the other guy does it. Well, he's doing it for this purpose and you're doing it for that purpose. If it's morally wrong, it's still morally wrong. And again, I, I can't tell you how tired I am of people, I was a veteran. Or what's even worse is the veteran by proxy syndrome. Oh, that makes me sick. And it should make all veterans sick. Well, my brother, my cousin, my son, my daughter, whatever, fought for your freedom. Okay, they didn't fight for my freedom. They fought for U.S. interests. 
Okay? That's the best, that's the, the kindest way that I can put it. Because they were paid to do so, told to do so, and ordered to do so. So did I. They don't have special powers, and you certainly don't, because they did it and you didn't, so just shut up. And it's, it, it almost makes me embarrassed to state that I've served when I hear people use it as justification for evil done by their government because now they're okay with it because their side's in charge. I actually believe this extremism, if, if, if we don't get a grip on it, could be far more dangerous to our republic, to our way of life, than anything else. More so than anything the government has done or will do without it uh, in the future. A very long time ago, before, long before I did a survival podcast, I was an active member of the Backwoods Home uh, Discussion Forum. And somebody said, what is our biggest danger? And, and a shit hit the fan, you know, board type thing. You know, coronal mass ejections and shit like that. And I did a post and I said, our biggest danger is us. That was, see, the show's eight years old um, in June. That had to be two or three years. So that's 13 years ago. I'm sorry, uh, 11, 12 years ago that I, I wrote those words. My opinion has not changed. My opinion has changed about a lot of things. You've listened to my opinion change about things over the eight years I've done the show because as an open-minded, intelligent person that's always willing to take a new look at things, uh, your opinions will change. If your opinions never change, you're not learning. You know? My opinions about morality have remained largely the same, but the morality has led me to new opinions about what is and is not moral. I always thought it was wrong to steal. Now I think it's wrong to steal even if you have a, a title or a name or a badge. But my morality, the core morality with stealing is wrong. But the problem we really have with this is that once you get into an extremist situation, anything you say will make you, in the eyes of the person you're saying it to, if it doesn't 100% agree with them, to appear to be an extremist of the other side. You've all experienced this. You're talking to your friend. They are a, let's say, conservative. You largely agree with them on many things. You've agreed with them for years. They bring something up. You point out that it's inconsistent with what they actually believe. This causes cognitive dissonance, which is a feeling of uncomfortableness and anger by being presented with facts that, that do not fit with your long-held beliefs. And they say, what are you, a, what are you, a socialist? <laughs> right. I'm the guy that goes, that goes hunting with you and fishing with you. I'm the guy you've known your whole life, right? <laughs> I'm the guy that in many instances is actually more... Uh, liberty-oriented even than you are, and I'm a socialist because I pointed to the truth. And that's that's extremism. That's how extremism works. And it's what's polarizing the whole world right now. And the danger of being a voice in, in the middle is that both extremists will hate you. We have to so outnumber them. And I don't mean the middle politically. I mean in the middle from a, a factual state. Not even the middle from being factual, from being truthful, from being to say, listen, whether you like this or not, this is the legitimate reasons behind it. This is who actually did it. This is who actually started it. This is why it was actually started. 
This is what it's actually doing. And now we can make a decision about how to deconstruct it or fix it or make it better or get rid of it or whatever it is. But if we're not going to do that with issues, we're not going to get anywhere. You would think that people say, well, that's a logical person. No, they hate you for it. Welcome to extremist America on both sides. And the only thing I know to do about it is to keep speaking the truth and keep focusing on the areas in your own life that you actually control. Because convincing your brother-in-law is not going to happen. And his opinions are outside of your sphere of, of influence, your true sphere of influence. He will actually fight you harder than he will fight things he discovers on his own. The closer you are to someone, the more difficult it is to disagree with them, specifically on ideologies. That's the best I can do for you on that one. With that, I've kind of worn it out today. Uh, the voice is strained even more. So I'll just remind you, if you like the show and the work that I do, one of the ways you can support us is by doing your shopping when you're going to shop on Amazon through tspaz.com. If you go to T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com, and uh, click the link, go to Amazon. Whatever you buy that day will support us. That's all you have to do is go there first. And uh, I have items of the day up for review most days of the week. Today I have Jerusalem artichokes from a seller on Amazon called Yum Heart Gardens. I love growing Jerusalem artichokes, and uh, this is a seller that I have done business with on other plants in the past. They always do a good job. Shipping's a little bit high. Uh, you get a pound of them with shipping for about 16 bucks. And I've had people say, well, I can go to Whole Foods and buy them there. Go to Whole Foods and buy them there. If you can't, and you're looking for them, you want to grow them this year, this is a seller that will send you good product. Um, I also have a recipe published in the uh, in the, the write-up on them today uh, for making fermented ones, which I did this year. Uh, they came out great. I'm going to leave it at that. But, again, if you want to help support our show, consider going to tspaz.com. Again, just click over to Amazon, or you can click the other link and see all the reviews. The most recent one will be on Jerusalem Artichokes from Yum Heart Gardens. Um, <clears throat> it's time for our song of the day. And uh, <clears throat> I, I've been kind of leading up to this. I said that the... Uh, This decade will start uh, with these uh, the remains of these love songs from the uh, the baby boomers, booming out baby generation, uh, take us through rock and roll, and end with the most upbeat, optimistic sounding song about mass murder you've ever heard in your life. And I, I believe that's the case. Many of you probably have heard this song, and uh, in passing because it's not a real popular modern song, but you've probably heard it. And never even really thought about it or the words to it. But at the time it was released, it wasn't like, gee, no one really knew what it was about. The song is by Bobby Darren, and it's called Mac the Knife. And the songs, some people I think think this is, uh, there actually was, there was a metal band in the 80s did a, did a, a, a Mac the Knife uh, version. It was way off of this one. Um, but uh, was it Judas Priest? Somebody like that. Anyway, um, Did they? The people knew what this song was about in the year that it was number one, and people liked it. It's like a jazz, upbeat jazz song about mass murder. And I think a lot of people might think it's about Jack the Ripper. It's not about Jack the Ripper. It was adapted from a, it's a French or an Italian opera, some opera, uh, and it's about this 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 murderous character in this uh, in this uh, this play. But he is very much a Jack the Ripper like character, a guy that uses a knife to kill and, and leaves without a trace of who he was. Murdering people and traveling here and there. And you just wonder what the hell was going on in a society that would think this song should be so popular as to be the most popular song of the year. Keep in mind, last year's 1958 song was also about a murder, but it was about a murderer, you know, dying, uh, being punished with a death penalty. But it also was kind of upbeat, like happy go lucky towards murder. 
What this makes me think of is Alex Shrug's history segments when we were going through the time of like the plague and parents generally not getting attached to their children until they you know were five, six, eight years old or so because so many of their children were going to die. And how that as we came into more modern society and, and things began to improve and childhood survival rates started to go up, parents started to be more attached to their young children again. There's almost a cynicism that comes with coping with reality. And while nothing in 1959 was is anywhere close like the plague or anything, what it makes me just think is it was this 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 constant belief that would we would be obliterated by hydrogen bombs that had people almost mocking death and mocking murder as a way to mentally cope with this stress. And I think some of you younger guys, you just don't understand. You know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. We had drills where we hid under our desks in school. And I can only imagine, and, and by that point, it was kind of like it had been a long, this has been a long threat, and threats even at that point, they begin to wane a little bit. 1959, the, the, re, the total reality that the world could erupt into mushroom clouds at any moment was a relatively new concept. And with things going on like the bantering between uh, Khrushchev and the United States, The, the probability that it would happen was pretty high. Uh, if you were building a bunker at that time, they didn't put you on doomsday preppers. They gave you cans of crackers to put in it. Not kidding. I own, I actually own two cans of 1966 era uh, doomsday crackers. Uh, big ones. I got them cheap on eBay just because they were a piece of American history. Maybe we'll bring them out for the event. Maybe we'll dare somebody to open them and eat one. I wouldn't do it. But they have from 1960, one's from 66, one's from 67. That's the mentality that was going on in the society at the time. And that's the only way I see songs like this being number one. But it is who we were. Now, I have a little thing for you here at the end. I had a guy, that's a friend of the show, make a list for me from like 1970 up to like 1990 of songs from each year. And instead of doing the number one song, songs that are better songs and more indicative of what was going on in society at the time. We all know that I can't go past 1996, but I'd like to hear from you guys in the, the comments. Would you prefer that we pick a song from each year rather than just play the number one song of the year as we go forward? We'll make a decision on that sometime this week. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Oh, the shark has such teeth and it shows them Pearly white Just a jackknife Has old Maggie Heath, babe And it keeps it uh, Out of sight You know when that shark bites With his teeth, babe Scarlet billows Start to spread Fancy gloves, though Where's old Maggie Heath? So there's never, never a trace of red Now on the sidewalk, uh-huh, ooh, sunny morning, uh-huh Lies a body just oozing life Get someone sneaking round a corner Could that someone be Mac the Knife? There's a tugboat down by the river, don't you know? Where a cement bag just drooping on down. 
Yes, that lion 